0: Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Listeners, time for some more Q&A. Give me a job, give me security. I'll answer your questions all day. Let's jump right into it. We've had a couple fun recent shows where I got to go into the latest, greatest things that I've been thinking about, trying out, experimenting with in terms of exercise, routine, and diet. And now let's tackle some direct questions from enthusiastic listeners trying their hardest to do things right, do things the healthy way. And in this case, our first question from Candy, Coach Kids the Right Way. Uh, She's been coaching cross-country and track and field for three seasons. And she implemented the Maximum Aerobic Heart Rate Training during the track season, plans on carrying it over into the cross-country season. In the track season, I would keep the team's anaerobic efforts at two days a week. In most cases, the anaerobic efforts were races or practice sessions where we sprinted for under 300 meters, and we race one to two times a week for about two months, typical high school track season. Uh, then the uh, cross-country season coming up with Uh, summer months devoted to aerobic and then starting in september they uh, start the race season Uh, october she's planning on reducing aerobic volume and adding in more sprinting more racing and then uh, the season ends uh, november early december in most cases most states so our question is with our season lasting about two months is there any reason to start anaerobic work before october Is the chance of burnout and injury not worth the risk? Good stuff, Candy. I agree with you. These kids are out there, for the most part, trying to have fun, especially in a mass participation sport like cross-country with no cuts. Uh, Same with track. Virtually everyone is welcome, especially in the distance events where you don't need one person per lane, Uh, unlike the shorter events where you're picking uh, the best three or four kids on the team to field the... Uh, the the field for the 100 meter, 200 meter, 400, whatever, high jump. You can't have endless kids, but that's what's so great about distance running. It's social, it's mass participation. Uh, The person at the end gets cheer from the crowd, just like the winner. Uh, Unfortunately, these overly enthusiastic, overly competitive, overly intense, uh, tightly wound coaches are pushing kids too hard and this is going on across the nation for years and decades and it really gets me going you've probably heard me talk about it before on other shows but it's an absolute travesty to have an overly stressful uh, training pattern in a youth cross-country or track program now if you happen to uh, hit the jackpot and a kid shows up at your school and he or she is a state level national level type talent And you get to nurture that talent for four wonderful years. Congratulations. Have a great time with that. Guess what? You probably can't even screw that action up because the talent level is so high. No matter what you do, if you sit back and read a Playboy magazine folded inside your track program, like we caught a certain coach uh, uh, (laughs) on my team with, guess what? Doesn't matter. The kids are still going to succeed. Uh, And if you have kids that are just out there trying to balance their lives, do something that gives them some self-esteem, some sense of camaraderie, and you're pushing them too hard and you don't see their bright smiley face come back the next season, you have done a tremendous disservice to the individual and to the program and to the community uh, trying to promote lifelong health and fitness that you're exposed to in high school. So I really think, generally speaking, All coaches across the country should back the heck off with their mentality and their training patterns with these kids and turn them loose, let them have some fun. Uh, We were largely self-coached in high school, uh, myself and my training buddies And we had a great time just making up our own routes. We had a run called the Doberman Run, where uh, we climbed over a fence onto private property, had to run across about an 80-meter stretch, and then climb over another fence to escape. And you know what? You had to sprint there because the dogs would see you at the top of this hill where the the home was and sprint at full speed. They were probably a quarter mile away, but they could see us coming into the private property, and they were trained to uh, uh, deter... Uh, people from trying this. So that was a big one, especially when, uh, we took, uh, people that were new and hadn't done the route before. And they'd say, what's the Doberman route? And we'd say, you'll see pretty soon at about mile three. So, uh, we were really emphasizing fun and creativity. Um, Steven Deitch would go plan these camping trips out on, uh, out on the beach at, um, Uh, Ventura State Beach or Sycamore Canyon and we'd all camp on spring break and we'd run our asses off and we'd work really, really hard in the workouts, but was exploring new terrain or doing uh, you know, creative games like Follow the Leader where we'd jog down the beach and the rule was if you were the leader, uh, you could turn and sprint into the ocean waves at any time and everyone had to follow you and sprint out past the waves and whoever was first would become the next leader. So it was a you know, highly uh, explosive anaerobic workout that actually turned into be uh, a long duration as well. What a fantastic session, but it wasn't, you know, grueling and torturing because we were having so much fun at the beach. So generally speaking, add more fun into the program, Make sure that these kids run at an appropriate heart rate for their ability level. So rather than sending the whole pack of 37 or 87 kids off onto a training run, try to segment the group based on where they are. And some kids for a two or three mile training run is plenty. And for the elites on the varsity and the kids that are going for state or section qualifying, of course, they can have a more appropriate training session, but they will benefit greatly from strapping on that heart rate monitor and toning down that natural competitive instinct and learning how to build a base. And of course, when the season comes and you're racing your way into shape and you're doing a lot of racing, you're going to get plenty of anaerobic work, especially for a kid. Whew. Okay, you got me going off a little bit, but it's a really, really simple answer and I am so glad for people like Candy who are enlightened and trying their best to, uh, to do right by these kids and go for longevity and check in with these kids 10 years later and see if they're still running. And that is the sign of a fantastic high school youth coach, uh, far more important than all the banners that you hoist onto the walls of the gym. Okay, uh, this one is kind of a little uh, success story from David Pritchett, who is a primal health coach and a finisher of Ironman Texas. And he says, hey, thanks, Brad, for bringing the book to life. Uh, Your background knowledge wit during the videos made the complex concepts, well, that's a tongue twister, the complex concepts understandable. So he's taken the uh, primal endurance mastery course. And yeah, I go off on these videos. It's so much fun because when you're writing a book, you're basically, you know, communicating by a piece of paper to the other person. You can't be as an emphatic or uh, humorous or lighthearted when when time calls for it. So if you enroll in the mastery course and watch me bring the book to life with a series of videos and interview all these wonderful experts, you will get the full picture, the full package. Uh, so he keeps on with saying, outside of the topics presented by Brad, the expert interviews covered all the topics from different points of view. This gave the student different perspectives that might apply to them individually. Personally, I found the interviews with Gordo Byrne, Tim DeBoom, and Zach Bitter very enlightening. They have proven that conventional wisdom of endurance training is a thing of the past. I'm focusing on practicing the same nutrition recovery and training principles as they do while tailoring those principles to my personal needs. I always enjoy listening to Dr. Maffetone, but I had a great takeaway from Kelly Starrett on recovery. As always, Dr. Kate is great on nutrition, and I learned a lot from Tani Prazak when she discussed specific female challenges with going low carb. Woo-hoo! What a nice commercial, man. Uh, We should make that a commercial. Record that for me in your own voice. I'm going to get back to you. We'll put it at the end of the podcast. (laughs) Okay, Uh, back to um, the questions. This is from David. I'm not sure if it's the same David. Sorry, David Pritchett, but um, the next question comes from David as well. And the next question after that comes from David. Happy Hanukkah or something. I don't know what's going on here. Anyway, um, David starts out, I may have what might be a stupid question. Uh, So a little background first. Oh, okay. So we're going to grow to like you before you pose the stupid question. That's a good strategy. All right, let's get some background i uh, been an endurance athlete for years, triathlons, mostly running, cycling. Um, I started off the season with a lot of base training, and prior to reading Primal Endurance, most of those miles weren't really base training. They were probably black hole zone. I then ramped up to a very chronic cardio schedule. <laughs> oh my goodness, David. Um, let this be a lesson to everyone. So he's starting out with what he thinks is base training, but it's slightly too stressful. It's in that black hole making it vastly too stressful if you're doing this pattern over time, if you're regularly exceeding your uh, max aerobic heart rate and then ramp into a very difficult chronic cardio schedule. So I'm gonna predict this story ends in the destination of burnout. Uh, So during that difficult, when he ramped it up, it was mostly training rides with a hammer fest on my team. Uh, The diet was always relatively low carb Sometimes I had rice and copious amounts of beer, but being married to a dietitian who is current in today's research, wow, that's a rare one, huh? Okay, that was a little rude, but what I mean is uh, the traditionally trained dietitian is trained according to uh, government standards, USDA, food pyramid, things like that, and generally that population, uh, you're not going to find open-minded people who are embracing, let's say, the recent. Uh, breakthroughs in evolutionary health and diet research. Uh, and so he indeed uh, references his wife as being very open minded. So we already eat a very high fat, low carb diet. How cool. Uh, but trying to keep it pretty clean too, since the dietitian's washing. Uh, so David says he's been training below max aerobic heart rate for four weeks now. So kind of spun out of the Hammerfest program with his teammates and embracing the primal blueprint approach. I know that takes a lot of courage. Congratulations. It's really hard to step aside from what's going on around you and your environment. And when people are getting on the bike and hammering, and you're looking at this annoying beeping heart rate monitor, um, it is a a big commitment to stay the course. I know when I was uh, racing as a pro and very intently competitive and comparing myself and all my workout times uh, to try to predict how I would do in the in the race. And of course, get, you know, a little feisty during workouts when uh, we're competing with, uh, you know, or or training with other people who are very competitive. Uh, So it was a huge uh, leap of faith, really, to say, okay, I'm going to slow down and try this out um, and see what happens, even though I'm going to be watching guys leave me in the dust day after day after day in training. So David's been going, uh, building up some good momentum and consuming less than 100 carbs a day, while he's keeping that heart rate low. My donut cravings have subsided, and I feel like I'm definitely fat burning. So my question, I've timed this transformation poorly. The state criterium championship is this Monday, and it's only a 45-minute race, but it will be well above aerobic, I believe. Well, it better be, man, if it's the state championship. (laughs) You got a bunch of guys riding at aerobic heart rate because they're trying to honor the primal endurance principles. That would be a pretty sorry-ass state. So of course, the state championship is going to be balls out, hammer fest. Um, I really want to do this race, but it in no way accommodates my goal of eight weeks of submax aerobic work. So the question is, and I think he's uh, asking on behalf of a lot of people, so I can't wait to answer it. Um, will this completely destroy the progress I've already made, causing me to start over at week one? Or will this little spike be okay, assuming proper rest and recovery? I know the book says strictly eight weeks of aerobic training, but at the same time, I feel so stinking good already. <laughs> okay. So, you know, Phil uh, does a good job himself when he's talking about the math approach and the math heart rate. Um, he, he makes that critical distinction that, yes, once in a while it's okay to slam yourself and push yourself really hard and have a breakthrough workout. And you're going to feel great when you come off of base training because your hormones are optimized, your muscle fibers, your blood volume, your health markers are in good shape rather than teetering on the edge of overtraining like most endurance athletes who are training in black hole pattern. So when you give yourself a break and do three weeks of comfortably paced aerobic training, yes, you can jump into a race and feel fantastic. Your body does not need day after day anaerobic stimulation to perform a good anaerobic effort. And as Phil talks about in detail in the Primal Endurance Mastery course videos, um, the anaerobic muscle fibers don't require a high frequency of training. They are designed for brief explosive efforts without the use of oxygen. That's what the term anaerobic means. Aerobic means with oxygen, literal definition. Anaerobic means without oxygen. So these muscle fibers are designed to uh, explode you up to the rim so you can dunk or jump over the high jump bar or perform a high-intensity 400-meter repeat or 200-meter repeat, or be called into action when you're doing a 45-minute all-out criterium race for the state championship. So what I mean by that is when we say the criterium race is anaerobic because you're far in excess of your aerobic maximum heart rate, don't uh, misinterpret that to mean that it's entirely anaerobic. Uh, As detailed in the Primal Endurance book, I've talked about it on the show a little bit, Um, the relative contribution between the aerobic energy producing system and the anaerobic energy producing system is shockingly uh, uh, disparate from what you might believe. In other words, uh, the cutoff point for 50-50 contribution, so an effort that's 50% aerobic and 50% anaerobic is about a minute and 15 seconds all out effort. This is uh, verified in exercise physiology text, so it's not just conjecture. So when you're talking about David's 45-minute high-intensity criterion, it's mostly an aerobic effort, strange as it may seem, hard to believe. Most of your energy is being delivered by the aerobic system and only a small fraction by the anaerobic system. So this slow-paced training has a great contribution to your success at high-intensity performance. As I said also joined with this is the idea that the aerobic the anaerobic muscle fibers do not need to be trained that frequently because they're designed for brief explosive effort so occasional stimulation of the anaerobic system is great whether you're doing your track workouts intervals tempo uh, whatever it is these short duration workouts will fine tune you for an outstanding peak performance and you require a lot of recovery time after you're working the anaerobic muscle fibers so Um, that's where the periodization fits in uh, that's emphasized in the primal endurance approach is that you do these two to three week blocks uh, of anaerobic emphasis training where you reduce your aerobic volume and you throw in some fast workouts but generally you don't exercise uh, as long duration Uh, your weekly hours go way down your rest goes up your rest days and your easy workouts your recovery workouts and you're just throwing in some intensity but the block of time is only lasting uh, two to three weeks, four weeks at the absolute maximum before you again return to a strictly uh, aerobic pattern. So this one race that comes in the middle of his aerobic uh, base building period is absolutely no problem. It's not going to arrest your progress. It's probably going to give you a boost in fitness because it's such an intense event. And then you resume your aerobic base building uh, and you'll do wonderfully. So If you now write back and say, hey, can I do three more races next month and then two more the following month and then keep going with my base building, then you're talking about compromising the intended benefit of a distinct period of time where you're building a base. But I'm saying if you're going for eight weeks with a commitment to aerobic training and you have a race thrown in there, that's absolutely fine. And uh, Phil writes this almost verbatim in his book to say, if you want to go out there and do a 5K, um, go ahead. (laughs) just don't get into that overstress pattern. Um, So how's that answer? Absolutely not a stupid question. Great question. We can all learn from that and um, not worry about it. But at the same time, before I go to the next question, I want to remind us all in the type AA uh, personality category, um, sometimes when a coach or a podcast host gives you an inch, you'll have a tendency to take a mile and sprinkle in a couple other anaerobic workouts because uh, Brad said they don't interrupt your progress in aerobic base building. So I have found best results come when you're very, very strict and focused at suppressing that heart rate and keeping everything aerobic for weeks on end so that you allow yourself to improve Without the interruption of high stress workouts, don't worry; those workouts will come later, and you will stress yourself. You'll recover, and you'll build up to a higher fitness level. But the importance of building that base is can't be understated. It's everything for the endurance athlete. Okay. Also from David, another David. I'm 28 years old. My math is 152. I find it difficult to contain my heart rate. Uh, When something beyond my control comes into the picture, say a vicious dog or being buzzed by a car. (laughs) What does that mean? Buzzed by a car? Does that mean you're going to chase after the car or you start screaming and your heart rate goes up? I don't know. Given that heart rate is so variable, does it ruin an aerobic workout when it spikes up to 165 because I was almost pancaked by a car? There was no extra effort on my part, just a spike in heart rate and maybe a little adrenaline dumped into my bloodstream. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's cool how that works, huh? Um, the heart rate is such a great uh, indicator of the, uh, the stress that your body's under, the level of effort. And so when you get angry and your emotions rise because you almost get pancaked by a car, it indeed spikes your heart rate. And that is an indication that the stress of the workout has just been increased. Uh, same with seeing a dog. And uh, (laughs) going on the Doberman run, and when you turn and see that dog, everyone's heart rate is all of a sudden spiking through the roof. Also, my interesting insight about speed golf uh, is when I'm out there doing kind of an aerobic speed golf session, so I'm not in a competitive uh, tournament-type mindset where I'm running as fast as I can, but I'm just trying to keep my heart rate low so the workout's not stressful. Uh, So I'll be jogging along, uh, limiting my heart rate to my aerobic maximum, 130, uh, jogging along, get to my ball, stop running, get my club, take the swing and hit the shot, and I will frequently hear my heart rate beeping, indicating that I have exceeded my maximum aerobic heart rate during the period of time that I was not running and concentrating and taking the swing just because of the energy required to To strike the ball and also the concentration is causing a spike in my heart rate. It's fascinating. So <laughs> then I got to I got to slow down even more after stopping to hit the shot. Trip out on that. So your heart rate's watching everything you do. It doesn't lie. Uh, so if you have that slam of coffee before you head out and pedal on your bike, you might find that your heart rate is uh, unusually elevated as you roll out of the driveway and down the two miles of flat road uh, at the start of the ride just because of the stimulatory effect of caffeine, which means you have to go slower because your body's in a, uh artificially stressed state by the caffeine. So it kind of has the opposite of the intended effect where uh, cyclists forever have had to go to the coffee shop before they can start their ride to get jacked up on caffeine. It's going to require a lower uh, speed on the bike Due to that, very interesting. I remember one time uh, I was at the starting line of the LA Marathon and just, you know, the excitement, the energy of the crowd. And I looked down and my heart rate was like 126. And I was like, oh, gee, my uh, I, I gotta moisten my straps more. It's not getting an accurate reading. But indeed it was an accurate reading And I was just standing there excited about the start with 20,000 people uh, behind me because I was going to get some camera time in the front row for a while. (laughs) Uh, So definitely, I was like a nervous energy getting that heart rate up and over uh, way beyond uh, what you'd think would be uh, prior to the race start. Okay, Ward says, this question might fall into the quote, can I find a way around the math, heart rate aerobic base building category? Though I hope not. Uh, I want to expand to consider the issue of sarcopenia in older athletes. Uh, that means muscle loss uh, related to aging. I'm 69. I've been in ketosis for three and a half years and I've been physically active my whole life. Uh, only in the last decade did I fall into this high-intensity black hole. I can still power up a hill, but long, slow performance is a problem. So I'm crawling my way out of this black hole, this overtraining pattern that's uh, caused him to decline in fitness and I'm working on a MAF heart rate of 180 minus age, which is only 111. Uh, This means I'm barely moving sometimes. I feel like I could bump up to 121 using some age adjustments that Maffetone talks about. But frankly, the results at 111 feel pretty good during and after workouts. However, the issue of sarcopenia is a concern. So in other words, if he's going really slow with these workouts, He's honoring the aerobic principles, but he's not really uh, building the muscle that he wants to preserve uh, to delay aging. Um, the muscle fibers lost during sarcopenia are fast twitch, which receive no stimulation during math workouts. Um, I don't know that to be the case, so I hope you're right. In other words, um, when you experience muscle loss, is it necessarily fast twitch muscle fibers? we're gonna have to ask uh, somebody and maybe a listener can tell us uh, because it might um, affect the answer a little bit. But the general picture here is important to consider that um, if you're toning down the intensity, you are gonna put yourself at risk of uh, sarcopenia. So Ward goes on to write about his concerns of being damned if you do, damned if you don't, trying to honor the aerobic principles and also not lose muscle. Is there some compromise I can make? Um, talking about this uh, blood flow restrictive training uh, process from Dr. Ken Ford, and then asked me at the end, is there a good way to maintain fast twitch muscle fibers while at the same time building my aerobic pace? And my answer is, yeah, through periodization. So as you go through the book and through the uh, the mastery course in primal endurance, you're going to start with building a base. But then if we keep reading, we're going to find out that we then enter into this uh next phase of the periodization, the uh, blocking of the year characterized by different forms of training. So you're gonna come out of base training and introduce uh, high-intensity strength training and sprint workouts Mm -hmm. that are gonna build plenty of muscle and you'll preserve muscle for a long time as long as you don't detrain. So I think um, that concept needs to be uh, respected and appreciated by everyone here listening, whether it's aerobic fitness or uh, muscle mass, muscle Mm -hmm. strength. Um, the body does very well to preserve the hard work that you've put in if you just give it sort of a baseline level of activity and workouts. Um, this has been uh, verified for decades by the great work of Dr. David Kostel, one of the legendary exercise physiologists operating out of the, uh, the vaunted human performance lab at Ball State University in Indiana. Uh, Colleen Connors-Pace, Auburn Triathlon Race Director, went there uh, and got her degree, went across the country to uh, Indiana uh, because of the prestige of the program. And they have shown that if you taper athletes, even what we would think as an extreme taper, they lose little or no fitness and in many cases gain fitness. So the great work that Kostel did with the swimmers, I might not be relating this exactly right, but it was something like an eight-week taper where they did a 50% reduction in volume and intensity. So the workouts were, ba- every workout was cut in half. And at the end of this period of time, they did a performance test to match the performance test that they did at the out of the taper. And across the board, they had improved their times, uh, swim times due to reduced training for eight weeks. And that was the first glimpse of exiting out, of the, the dark ages of this extreme over distance that any collegiate or high level swimmer can talk to you about if they swam in the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s, where all they did was uh, put these poor guys in the pool for hours and hours every day. Same with the distance runners going back to the uh, the times of uh, Prefontaine and Frank Shorter and the, you know, the dawn of the uh, distance running boom in the United States. Mark Sisson talks about that was his era uh, now that he's in his sixties. So, you know, when he was in his twenties, this was way back in the, in the early days where the thought was, uh, if, if you could run hundred miles a week, that was your key to success in, uh, endurance running crazy stuff. And then they finally discovered that tapering really, really works. And it's very, very difficult to lose whatever fitness level you have attained, even if you dramatically reduce your training for as long as two months. I have found this anecdotally to be absolutely true, and I will verify this uh, over and over, uh, looking at my training logs over time. Where uh, I take the winter off and I don't swim, a, I don't swim for uh, one lap for two months. Uh, I'm just resting uh maybe going into the weight room and doing some weight. So I'm maintaining my fitness, maybe getting some different stimulation than I did uh during the season when I was over training in the water. And then I'll come back and, and start first couple swim workouts, you know, just warm up, swim for 15 minutes, get back in the pool. And then like a week later, I will set PRs. Uh the best I've ever done in a swim workout coming off of two months of zero swimming. Of course, doing other forms of exercise and lifting weights, not detraining. We'll talk about that in a second. But imagine that after working hard for months and months on end and years on end in the pool, trying not to miss a workout because you don't want to lose your feel for the water. So I'm swimming three to four days a week and banging hard intervals with highly intense uh, competitive swim environments. And then I'm two months away from the pool, jump back in, and have my best workout ever. And it's a head shaker to the extent that I remember feeling almost a sense of frustration. Like, what is going on here? (laughs) Is that clock right? How could I be so fast when I haven't even swum in so long? Uh, But after you get a few of those confirmation uh, uh, incidents, you start to change your philosophy and your mentality around training such that you don't buy into this obsession with consistency and consistent workout patterns Uh, and putting yourself at the risk of losing fitness because you took a vacation for three days and didn't get out on the bike or didn't exercise a lick, Uh, you had an important business meeting and you feel the sense of frustration and stress, all it's gonna do is harness your reserves for an awesome workout when you come back. Okay, so that's my big message about skipping workouts, tapering, not worrying about it, not stressing about it. It's one of the most important mindset shifts you can make as an endurance athlete. That consistency is pretty much bullshit in this context when we're talking about the dynamic process of building fitness and preserving fitness. Whew, lots of action on today's show. I'm getting going, guys. You got me going. Uh, Now, that said we can talk about detraining in an entirely different perspective. So detraining due to illness, uh, injury, whatever it is, will cause you to lose your fitness very quickly. There's a nice sidebar in the book uh, on this very topic, and I propose this, um, uh, this even exchange ratio, where if you detrain for three weeks, it's going to take you uh, an equivalent three weeks of returning to exercise to get back to the fitness level where you were when you detrained for three weeks. So if you get a really bad illness, uh, like when I had my emergency appendectomy with complications afterward, I didn't do any exercise. I was in bed. Uh, you know, physically detraining, losing muscle mass, losing blood volume, and of course, uh, was a worthless piece of crap for a long time afterward. Before I could gradually return to exercise, so let's say I had a period of detraining that was maybe six weeks or seven weeks before I could, you know, resume jogging or whatever it was. Well, guess what? The ensuing seven weeks, when I'm starting to feel better and better and making progress, that's how long it's going to take me to get back to that point where the traumatic event occurred, where I could no longer exercise. Um, So let's take another example. If you all of a sudden just uh, vanish from the scene and don't exercise for a year, for whatever reason, you're going into your startup mode and you have to work 75 hours a week, uh, or you're going onto the oil rig to put in your six month stint, and then you get six months off after that, uh, oil rig out in the middle of the ocean, uh, no exercise allowed, whatever it is, your submarine duty comes up uh, and you're de-trained for six months, that's a long time. It's going to take you six months just to get back to the fitness level where you were at. So does that give you a sense of comfort? It does for me to realize that even if you have, you know, a real fall off the wagon type of situation, uh, you can get it back. It just has to be, you have to be patient, take some time. 20 years, uh, I'm 22 years off the, off the triathlon scene. <laughs> Would it take me 22 years to get back to being able to do a 146 Olympic distance? I don't know. I might be running out of uh, years here and it might never happen again. Oh, too bad. Sorry about that. Anyway, so relax a little bit with the, uh, the concept of tapering being scientifically validated to be highly effective and very, very difficult uh, to get out of shape. And then we have a complex question from Travis. So he talks about being a pretty fast runner here with a 124 half marathon PR. That was seven years ago. Now he's full keto going at 2.9 on his keto meter after a seven mile run. So now he's getting back in shape after some time off pursuing a half marathon goal, but he went out there on a training run Uh, was running 1130 miles and the heart rate in the 160s in the black hole for him if he's 42, well above maximum aerobic heart rate. The marathon's two months away. I have a history of just blasting my runs and getting injured. This is in my pre-keto days. Now I want to run slow enough to not get hurt, but maintain my sanity and not take forever. Um, questions. Does ketosis protect me somewhat from injury? Does ketones of 2.9 mean I can run anaerobically and my ketone level can keep up with the energy demands, although I know that isn't ideal? Ooh, that's an interesting question. You get what he's saying? So if you're making ketones like a crazy man, uh, you know, super high level in the blood, can those be used as a glucose like fuel to uh, get you going at above maximum aerobic heart rate and carrying you through a long effort? Um, I would say (laughs) this is time for a wise guy answer. And look, I pasted it in because I answered him via email. That's an interesting question. Thanks, Travis. As a runner, you know that a marathon is tough no matter what fuel you are burning. This is my answer to him. Your high ketones will matter for shit when your hip flexors seize up due to insufficient training. You have a good head start to rebuild aerobic fitness due to your experience as a runner going back that seven years and running that 124. 124. Uh, And you have metabolic flexibility, which is fantastic, uh, that you're committed to keto and you're very good at burning fat. But that doesn't mean you can uh, jump into black hole training and expect it to work just because you have a high blood level of ketones. Get me? There's so many other variables here, especially the stress impact of uh, running at 161 heart rate and trying to train for a half marathon at above maximum aerobic level. So back to the um, end of the answer, I was, I was riffing there for a little bit. And then what else I wrote was, there's no more magic in the bag, man. You have to rebuild your base with runs at math heart rate, or below. Simple. Okay? But I do like his head start, that he's so metabolically efficient, he's making ketones, uh, he should expect to succeed uh, with his base training, recover quickly, uh, burning a less inflammatory fuel before, during, and after these workouts. But again, going into the black hole equals stress, doesn't matter what kind of fuel you're eating or burning. So Josh is coming in uh, with an older question. Uh, I'm going to try to summarize uh, from the lengthy, uh, this is about... Uh, five or six hundred word questions. So if you're sending your questions in to info at primalendurance.fit, uh, let's try to keep them uh, concise. Like you're imagining someone uh, reading them on the show. How about that? Let's count how many words here. Yeah, three hundred sixty-six word question is tough to read because I'll make mistakes and then I'll I'll go faster instead of slower. And <laughs> anyway, Josh is a thirty-three year old coffee shop owner from Denver came across Primal Endurance, and this is back in 2016. So uh, he wanted to do um, this workout challenge that was listed in a book, Living with the Seal. I guess they're talking about Navy Seal. Uh, It was incredibly tough, but the very first day in the book uh, was run six miles and do 100 pull-ups. However, I was able to squeak out 30 days of workouts without dying or getting injured. Yeah, this stuff is cool. These challenges, they get us going, uh, I listened to Jocko, the best-selling author, the former Navy SEAL, and the guy who's uh, geeked up about getting up at four in the morning and being committed and focused and not making excuses. I um, listened to the podcast with uh, David Goggins, the legendary ultramarathon athlete who won the Ultraman in Hawaii and did these incredible uh, nonstop runs for, I think, 200 and something miles. He was on the Joe Rogan Show. Fascinating to hear the drive and the furious passion that these guys have for performing magnificent athletic feats and letting uh, you know the, uh, the mind over matter. Uh, they believe they could do it, they could do it. Goggins talked about how he was collapsed and completely destroyed at mile 73 of a hundred mile run, but he willed his body to get back up and run the final uh, 20 something miles to the extent that he literally could not function at the finish line. His wife had to drag him up Uh, uh, this the stairs of their apartment complex to the second floor. He's losing his bowels all over the place. She's, you know, throwing him into the bathtub because she has uh, nurse training, so she can pick up a limp body and, you know, nursing him back to health. And it's really a compelling commentary, and it causes some time for reflection about what's possible uh, with the mind and the body and the central governor theory that we talk about in the book, where. The brain is the ultimate limiter of performance, not the muscles. And it can recalibrate you if you're uh, kind of feeling wimpy at times. You can realize, you know, how much you're capable of if you just believe in yourself. Uh, but at the same time, I'm really feeling some backlash personally with all this messaging and this glorification of doing stupid shit. I'm sorry. Um, and if it if if you need this in your life and you need to overcome uh, your demons or you know pick yourself up from a period of Uh, 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 adverse behavior, adverse lifestyle practices, addiction, whatever. You can transfer your addiction to something that's uh, more promoting of fitness and health then using illegal substances, that's great. But I really would advocate that you do it in a healthy, sensible manner, such that your uh, life partner does not have to drag you up the second floor of your apartment staircase while you're losing your pipes uh, on the stairs. And then I guess cleaning it up later, he didn't mention that in the story, but it sounded like um, to me, I wanna reflect on how ridiculous it is that you didn't just stop your race at mile 78 when your body was destroyed and you asked for, um, more just because there's a finish line. So we need to create our own finish line sometimes. We need to be happy and content and satisfied with what we can do, even if it's not uh, up to standard, up to the artificial standard created by society uh, and Look, I'm a person who has had to constantly recalibrate and readjust my goals. I used to be uh, an elite athlete who was um, ranking in the world and winning national championship and uh, getting my picture in the magazine, and now I'm just goofing around at an empty track stadium trying to jump over the high jump bar. But the significance of the goal to me and the feeling of satisfaction when I do clear a height Hasn't been too many heights cleared lately because I strained my glute and for a long time it's been bugging me. I haven't been in the high jump groove. Uh, But when I do something that's an achievement right now at the age of 53 with other lifestyle variables compromising my total focus and dedication of being an athlete, uh, I'm more interested in helping others and uh, living a healthy, balanced lifestyle that's promoting of longevity rather than peak performance because those two do not go hand in hand. They oppose each other. Uh, When I do a miniature goal that is insignificant uh, to the planet, I feel just as satisfied and it's just as exciting to me as when I was uh, crossing the finish line in a race with uh, a thousand people there clapping for me. Okay. So we have to recalibrate our goals to be healthy and balanced and kind of second guess this obsession with, uh, you know, putting up numbers uh showing your wristwatch saying 4 a.m I'm working out now, what about you? That kind of stuff that I think social media has really facilitated us to feel inferior or feel insecure with what we're doing and the path that we're on. Okay. Wow. So I've gone off like three times on this podcast just trying to answer questions, but <laughs> um I'm I'm getting I'm getting into some good topics. Um, So Josh's lengthy story about the Navy SEAL challenges and stuff, uh, he's going on with um, some more details, uh, improving his uh, maximum aerobic function tests, and then leading finally to a question. Can you give some broad strokes for helping all of us who want to become primal obstacle course racers? How can an OCR-specific style exercises coordinate with the primal approach? If you wanted to win a Spartan race, how would you go about it? Is anyone out there willing to share a primal style approach or plan to OCRs? Um, I've read sample workouts for triathletes and runners in the book Primal Endurance. I just feel like these wouldn't be specific enough to Spartan success. Here's a list of common obstacles in most Spartan races. Long, heavy carry, that's like a 60-pound sandbag, or a bucket of pebbles up a steep hill. Uh, There's a rope climb, there's wall climbs, and there's bear crawls. Okay, fun stuff. Very popular these days. And what we're talking about there is an anaerobic or an explosive element to the challenge. Vastly different than, let's say, training for a 13.1 or a 26.2 or any form of triathlon where you're just asking your body to perform endurance and not carrying a 60-pound sandbag up a hill. Oh my gosh, can you imagine uh, hardcore endurance or ultra listeners if you're running that 50 and at mile 40 they say, hey, uh, the next thing you do is carry a sandbag up a hill. That would be tough. So I love the balance and the uh, the creativity that these obstacle course and these challenges put out there um, seems like a lot of fun. I've never, I've never done one formally. Uh, I'm sorry that I didn't invent the entire industry because when we were little kids, we would constantly put together obstacle course uh, events in our backyard in Wooden Hills, California, or going down to the local high school and finding the uh, stationary, you know, the things that were on the playground in the fitness area, and we'd make up our own obstacle courses and have a lot of fun. So what we're wanting to do here as an obstacle course enthusiast is very important to build that aerobic base, that foundation of endurance so that you can last for a couple hours without totally falling apart uh, from a musculoskeletal standpoint, but even more importantly from a cardiovascular, from an endurance standpoint, uh, from a fuel burning standpoint. If you're a sugar burner and you're slamming down gels Um, and they ask you to carry those sandbags up a hill, you're going to blow out your glycogen more so than someone who's running at an even steady pace uh, for 13.1 or 26.2. So you have to become a fat-burning beast with tremendous aerobic endurance before you even try to climb your first wall. Uh, That's what I would say, is that's the gateway to this stuff. Probably uh, you shouldn't sign up or put yourself on the starting line until you've uh, built an exceptional level of endurance. And I imagine that population uh, is pretty darn fit before they're even gonna think about something like that. Unlike, let's say, the community running event, like the LA Marathon, where every poser in gyms across LA is talking about how they signed up and they're gonna go out there. And I don't know if they're gonna finish, but if they do, uh, they might be ill-prepared, but no worse for the wear. They can take four or five or six hours or whatever they need and get themselves across the finish line. But this stuff is the real deal. And I don't think um, they like people making it halfway up the wall and then stopping. (laughs) So build that base. And then sport-specific training is wonderful. Of course, that's approved in the primal endurance approach. And when you're doing these explosive things and these um, race-specific preparation of trying to uh, climb walls, uh, do the uh, rope climb, um, those are going to be anaerobic in nature, uh, generally speaking. So uh, put those into your periodization plan and embark on these two or three or four week blocks where you're really focusing on the implements, the specific challenges, or the um, uh, simulation of those in a gym setting. So, uh, you know, if you don't have access to um, the The stuff that 's going to be in the Spartan race, of course, you can uh, mimic that in the gym and build those same muscles and probably find uh, expert trainers that uh, know some some perfect uh, workouts to help you with let 's say uh, a carrying up a hill of a heavy pound heavy bag, a rope climb, a wall climb, building those skills um, seems like a lot of fun a well balanced training program, uh, but like everything else, the element of recovery is so important, and I think people get uh intimidated or or geeked up about all the challenges they're about to face and think that they have to go do two wall climbs per week, two rope climbing sessions per week, uh, a a couple of uh, endurance runs, because of course we need that too. And they get into an overtraining mode before they get to the starting line. So always in the back of your mind, envision the Brad Kearns uh, gun training program method, where if I came over to your house right now, put a gun to your head and said, hey, we're going to go do an obstacle course right now. And guess what? You're going to finish. Well, You will finish because you have that extra motivation of a gun to your head. So you will be able to pull out a magnificent performance out of the hat Even if you haven't done any wall climbing in the last four weeks, you're gonna get to the wall and you're going to climb it. So if you're healthy, if you're well-rested and you have that fighting spirit that has not been abused by overtraining patterns, you're going to succeed on the race day challenges. Yes, it would be ideal to have exposure to it and go out and do a a mini OCR training session on the course uh, two weeks before, but failing that, just take care of your body Uh, do some fitness activities every single day, you know, keep a healthy, active lifestyle. Uh, My morning routine video, search Brad Kern's morning routine on YouTube, and you can see something that I do to establish a baseline every single day that helps me when it is time to go do a sprint workout or a high jump session. So it's just a fun thing that I do in bed before I allow myself to get out of bed that gets me uh, additional mobility, flexibility, injury prevention, uh, because you can see these crazy leg swinging and hamstring kickouts that's uh, helping those muscles that are challenged when I'm doing the high intensity stuff. Oh boy, thank you so much for the questions and for listening to this wild and crazy show. Uh, Email us info at primalendurance.fit uh, with your questions, comments, feedback, and please, if you have a couple seconds, I know you hear this a lot of time from podcast hosts, but it really does help to go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a quick review, uh, a few quick comments, encouraging other people, and we will be able to expose the show to more people that way. So, uh, leave us a review would be a big help. Thank you so much. Talk to you next time. I've got the will. I'm not a charity case! Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm. And the key ingredient in this formula is called phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress. Whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight-or-flight mode in modern life, in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right. Phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used... In Europe, on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So, this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.